Our oldest boy, Kyle, was about 10, and he was out in the backyard. He'd been out with a friend, and he came in from the backyard, and he kind of had a concerned look on his face, and his eyes were cast down. And I said, what were you doing out there, Kyle? He said, Rusty was out there. I said, were you playing? He goes, no, we were talking. I said, what were you talking about? He said, I was witnessing to him. Oh, that's good. How'd it go? Not good. Really? He said, yeah, Dad, he said, I, I told him that Jesus died for his sins. And he said, cha-ching. And then he said, I told him that Jesus wanted him to go to heaven when he died. And he said, cha-ching. He said, I don't think he understood. I said, I think you're right. I don't think he understood. I don't know what's become of Rusty. He's probably all grown up now. I don't know what he thought of that afternoon or if he learned anything. But I do know that he's like a lot of people that you and I know, and some of us that are probably here right now, they, their idea about salvation is that it's um, something that has to do with Jesus, and you add it to whatever else you're doing without any real serious or significant changes in your life. You add this Jesus to whatever else you're doing, and it's kind of like hitting the celestial jackpot. And you don't have to worry anymore about where you're going when you die. It's just kind of a casual, light-hearted, cavalier thing. But when Jesus spoke about salvation, about heaven and about hell, about where you're going when you die, he talked about it in very sobering and serious terms. Our text today is in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7. And uh, if you read verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 7, you'll notice this. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And we have here is uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew records Jesus' basic teaching. And it starts out with what sounds like kind of mild, sweet, ethical teaching. You ought to be this way. You ought not to be this way. But he doesn't stay there. He kind of turns the corner now. He's coming to the end of his message. And he's starting to make some very bold, very exclusive demands on people. He's starting to paint things very much black and white. It's heaven or hell. It's life or death. It's you accept me or you reject me. And he's talking primarily to religious people. It's very interesting. The, the people that he's talking to are under the impression, all of them are under the impression that they are on their way to heaven because they are good people who have some religious orientation. We're not preaching on the rest of this today. We're just going to focus on verses 13 and 14. But I want you to get the, the feel of it as we read. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do, you, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. So these are teachings of Jesus as he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Can you tell he's making some very narrow, very exclusive, very pointed claims. He's demanding repentance. He's demanding allegiance from people. Not just kind of a little add a little bit of Jesus to whatever else you believe or whatever you're doing. But he's talking about a radical repentance, turning from sin and change of life. Summer that Kyle witnessed to his buddy Rusty, I had taken him to a church in a nearby city where Ray Comfort was preaching. Ray Comfort is a, an evangelist from New Zealand. And he noticed that even though he had a lot of kind of like outward compliance or like kind of like converts they didn't stick so they would kind of make a profession of faith and they kind of wander off and he thought i gotta be doing something wrong so what he did is he started to study the bible real carefully to see if there was something he was leaving out of his gospel presentation and he began to read about great evangelists of the past and he noticed there was something that Jesus did that they did in the Bible that great evangelists of the past did that's commonly left out of modern evangelism. He discovered that he didn't spend enough time or give enough weight to the teaching of the law. Now, Kyle was only 10 and he heard this teaching. And when he came in from underneath of uh, the tree where Rusty was sitting in the tree swing and, and, and Kyle was witnessing to him, he had that little furrowed brow and he was shuffling his feet and he said to me, Dad... You know, I don't think I gave him enough of the law. Like, yeah, you're right. I think you're right. I think America needs more of the law because they don't know that they need the gospel. And if you're sitting here today, and you might be debating in your mind, I wonder if I'm going to add Jesus or not add Jesus. I wonder if I'm going to add Him to what I do or not add Him to what I do. I wonder if I'll drop by church every once in a while and do a little bit of Jesus. You know, I wonder if I'll uh, have a little warmth in my heart uh, toward Jesus. You haven't heard enough of the law. Because when, you, when, you, when the law is taught to your soul until you realize that you need, desperately need forgiveness and salvation, then you will want Jesus to be who He said He was. And you will want Jesus to do for you what He said that He would do. What Jesus is saying here is very simple. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. It's not hard. It's simple. There's only one command. There's one directive here. In verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. It's all He's saying. Verses 13 and 14, He tells them one thing to do. Enter by the narrow gate. By this we understand from the rest of the teaching of Jesus that what he's saying is believe 
in me. Jesus is God. Never had a beginning. He will never have an end. Not a created being. He's the one who created everything. You notice our songs today. Jesus is worthy of our honor and our worship. He's absolute holy God. And so he came into this world in, the, in, in a human form and lived a sinlessly perfect life and died on Calvary, not by accident or by some kind of political maneuvering primarily, but the decision that Jesus would die on Calvary for the sins of the world was made in time past, in eternity, in a decision among God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the the one true God in three persons decided together that Jesus would die for the sins of mankind, those who would believe. And so he chose to give his life, and he gave his life at Calvary. He was buried and rose again, ascended to heaven, and he's coming back someday. Now, he's the only God that there is, the only God who ever did anything like that, the only God who ever claimed to do anything like that. There's never been a prophet or a religion or a teaching that even claimed something like that. Jesus Christ came, died, was buried, and rose again for our sins. Now, what's interesting is that the story that we, how do we find that out? How do we know that? We know that because of the teaching of the Bible. Well, how do we know that the Bible is true? We know that the Bible is true because of a witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But we also have much, much manuscript evidence of, like, just take the New Testament, thousands of pieces of manuscripts of the New Testament, of parts of the New Testament. And they're from different times, and they're from different places. And they're from different writers. But when you gather them together and you look at them today, you see that they agree. In other words, we have powerful evidences. We can talk all day about powerful evidences that what we have, that the story that we have recorded in the Bible about Jesus is true and accurately recorded history. His claims of absolute deity, his death and resurrection, their inability of anyone to come up with another explanation than that Jesus actually died, was buried, and that he rose again. Nobody produced his body that would have been like a deal killer if you were, if you didn't believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and he claimed that he was going to rise again, and you could find his body, and you could show people his body, then his claims would be over, and there would be no Christianity. But there is a Christianity that sweeps across the world. Why? Because Jesus is God. And because He is alive. And because He does work within the hearts of people. And the primary, primary way that we know that is not by evidences, even though we could talk about evidences and answer questions of skeptics all day. The primary way that we know it is by the dynamic miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people, like the girl who told me yesterday that she was out power walking and she's just completely overcome with the problems that she had and she finally cried out to God and God delivered her from cocaine addiction and she's been walking with the Lord for a few years now. Jesus does, that's the kind of proof, really, that's the primary proof that Jesus is who he says he is when you yield to him. He forgives your sin and he changes your life. There's no other God that can do that. Jesus is the only way to God. How do we know this? This is what Jesus said himself. Now, sometimes people will say, no, wait a minute. I'm willing to accept that Jesus was a prophet or Jesus was a good man or Jesus had good moral teaching. But this idea that he's the only God and the only way to God, I can't accept that. And that's not even logical when you think about it, because if Jesus was a good man, he would not have lied. If Jesus was a good man and a good moral teacher, he wouldn't have deceived people into thinking that he was God. He wouldn't have told people that he was God, but he claimed to be God. 
And he died for that claim. It's the old trilemma, Lord, liar, lunatic. He says he was the Lord. If he wasn't the Lord, he was a liar. If he went ahead and died for his lie, he was a lunatic. So you can, you, you can say that he was a lunatic if you want to. You can say that he was a liar and a lunatic if you want to. Or you can say that he's Lord if you want to. But you cannot say that Jesus is a good moral teacher or some, someone from God if he was not God himself because he claimed to be God. And good people who aren't God don't claim to be God and receive the worship of God. And so this is a bold claim that Jesus makes. And he doesn't just make it here. He makes it throughout the Bible. Let me give you some examples where Jesus said he is the only way or the apostles said that he is the only way. This is one you're familiar with. Nor is there salvation in any other There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's one way to salvation, one name for salvation, one person who paid our sin debt. That is in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He didn't say, I am one of the breads of life. He said, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Can you imagine just a person saying something like that, not God? I mean, it's a bold claim, right? If you're saying, I'm the bread of life. I mean, you go, to, you go to work tomorrow and you bump into somebody who tells you they're the bread of life. You might want to kind of watch your back. Right? This is a bold claim that Jesus made. But he backed it up by rising from the dead. Dying on the cross, rising from the dead. He said, I am the bread of life. John 14, 6, you know this one. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. That's what this passage is saying. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. You cannot go to heaven unless you go through Jesus Christ the way that Jesus Christ said. It also says it in John 10. John 10, uh, verses 7 through 9. Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who ever come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear him, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. This is like an exclusive claim. Jesus doesn't say, I'm one of the doors to heaven. He said, I am the door to heaven. God, I heard, I heard a pastor say it this way. If there were 58 ways to heaven, I would preach all 58 of them. But there is only one way to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He is the only Way to heaven. We know this because the Bible teaches this and because Jesus validated his claims by his death and resurrection. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says, There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. An exclusive claim. Now these are just some of the passages in the scripture. And we could pile other things on top of this all day. This is the teaching of the Bible. That all of the big story of the Bible points toward Calvary, toward Jesus and toward the cross. Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount so that you would admire his ethical teaching. He didn't, although we do. As a matter of fact, if you were going to choose an ethical teaching that you were going to go by, a series of kind of platitudes or, or kind of rules to live by, the Sermon on the Mount would be a great, a great uh, set of rules to live by. Now, the problem would be this. Are, are you ahead of me on this? Wouldn't the problem be that once you read it and you say, this would be good. If I was going to start a culture or if I was going to start a heaven or if I was going to start a little uh, city, it would, I would want it to run on these principles. The only problem is what would happen? You might aspire to do that, but the first day you would fail. Am I right? 
You look all over, you couldn't, you couldn't find anybody who really had the moral ability to live by those high, exalted, lofty moral principles. Jesus Christ did not come only to teach the law. Jesus Christ came to save the world. He came to pay the price for our sin. He came to die on the cross and shed His blood. He's the only way to God. And you, are, if you're sitting under the sound of my voice like Rusty, who sat in this in the swing, and heard my 10-year-old kid give him the gospel. I trust that somebody's come into Rusty's life and made the gospel sweet to his ears, and that he's not walked away, and that was the only time that he ever heard the gospel. But you may be here today, and I'm trying to preach the gospel in a way that's honoring to the Lord and faithful to the Bible. This may be the only chance that you have, the only opportunity you really have to consider the claims of Jesus Christ on your life. You're this close to life. You're this close to death. You're this close to heaven. You're this close to hell. And if that's not true about you, it ought to stir up your heart to think about the people that you know. It's a black and white, life and death, heaven or hell decision whether or not people have Jesus as their Lord. Not Jesus as somebody they added to their life and they didn't repent and their life didn't change and they didn't come to terms with their sin. But people whose lives have been radically changed by repenting of their sin and believing in who Jesus is. One man whose name was William Wilder said this, Should we say perhaps you should try Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever been tempted when you're witnessing to somebody say, Try it for a while and see what happens. But you notice that Jesus does not present himself like this. You understand he's the benevolent, powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, coming king of the entire universe. There's nobody over Jesus. He's the very top. He's as high as it gets. He's very God of very God. He always was. He always will be. He'll come to earth to reign someday. And he's not going to come apologetically. He's going to come as the king, a good king, a godly king, a loving king, a perfect king, a benevolent king, but a, reign, but, a, but a king who has a right to rule and to reign in the earth. He's not going to come then in an apologetic way. And here's what, here's what William Wilder says. Should we say perhaps you should try Jesus as your savior, almost with like a consumer market oriented, oriented mentality? There are lots of religious options And if you try this particular religious option, you might like it. Should we say it that way? No, he says. You shouldn't say it that way. Here's how you should say it. Jesus is Lord. He will soon be invading with all of his armies. He's offering pardon in advance of his invasion. And should you receive that pardon and ally yourself with him now before he invades, then when he comes, you will be considered his ally and he will raise you to kingship. The alternative is to be under the wrath of the king. It's not some kind of religious option. It's an announcement that a new king is on the throne, that he will be invading. He'll be bringing his benevolent reign to the earth. The gospel is not an invitation to an array or a buffet-style choices. The gospel is a command to repent. Will you heed this command? Have you heeded this command? Have you obeyed this command? Have you repented and turned from your sin and believed in Jesus? That's what Jesus is saying. He's the only way to eternal life. That's why he says, enter by the narrow gate. And you see, as these two verses play out, he's just talking about a, a, two gates. There's a narrow gate. The narrow gate is hard. It leads to life. And there are only few who go in by the narrow gate. There's a, there's a wide gate that leads to a broad way that leads to destruction. And many go in there. That's what Jesus is saying. So, Jesus is the only way to eternal life. 
And he's clearly saying the other ways lead to hell. This destruction that Jesus uses as a kind of poetic or descriptive device is just a placeholder for hell. We know this because we read in other places that nobody talked about hell more than Jesus warned about hell. Because he's the most loving and the being that ever lived, then of course, obviously being you know, aware of the reality of hell, he would be the one who warns people about hell more than anyone else. Don't tell me you are a pastor or you're a prophet or you're a teacher and you're a writer and you're more benevolent, kinder, more loving than God so that you don't talk about hell. Don't tell me that. That's not true. You don't believe there is a hell because if you believe there was a hell and you love God and you love people, you would constantly talk about it, warning people not to go there. There is a hell. If there's a God, there's a hell. If there's a Bible, there's a hell. If there's a heaven, there's a hell. If there's a Jesus, there's a hell. They're all in the same book. We don't want to explain them away. We just want to warn people that other ways, all of them, lead to hell. These ways may be broad. These ways may be easy. These ways may be popular. They may even be world religions or cults or isms. They may be flattering to the ego or to the flesh. They may appeal to the intellect. They may be religious ways. All of these that Jesus is talking about are religious ways. He's talking here to religious people. But there are only two ways. There's the way of your own merit, and there's the way of Christ's merit alone. The way of your own merit or your own righteousness is a broad way that leads to destruction and hell. The way of Jesus Christ, his righteousness and his merit is the narrow, hard way that leads to life. Other ways are deceptively attractive. The Bible says that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So in other words, Satan's at work in the world. You say, yeah, I know he is. There's murder and there's rape and there's theft and there's mayhem and there's all kinds of bad things. Yes, and there's religion without Jesus. You understand, the religion without Jesus is the most deadly, most destructive, uh, most subtle way that Satan works. And this is what Jesus is warning about. Religion, that's another way besides Jesus. He says it's a way to hell. Other ways being deceptively attractive. They're demonically inspired. This is something that we got to understand. The reason that some of these ideas get traction is because demons are behind them. Otherwise, the ideas themselves, when you read them, they're just laughably silly or foolish. Why would a person believe such folly, such foolishness? It's not logically consistent. It doesn't make any sense, but people believe. Why is that thousands, even millions of people believe things that aren't true? It's because there are forces that work behind, spiritual forces that work behind them. You say, prove it, Pastor. 1 Timothy 4.1 The Spirit says expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith because they will give heed or they will listen to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. This is more common than you think it is. There are evangel- There are people that like to identify themselves as evangelicals who are subject to this very same kind of thing. Jesus warns us not to follow the crowd to death. The people of God are always a faithful remnant, a, 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 a never popular minority. In the parallel passage in Luke 13, they were asking Jesus' disciples, is it many or few that are going to go to heaven? One said, Lord, are there few who are saved? Jesus answered and said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus warned that at the end there will be many people who said, I did wonderful things in your name, and I cast out demons in your name. These were religious people who used his name, 
he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a very sober warning. It's a serious matter. Jesus didn't get involved in any of this kind of marketing. that You see, do you ever have somebody call you on a phone or send you something and send you a little card? How would you like to win a fully loaded Ford F-150 with all, this, all the extras? All you need to do is come and hear this little presentation that we're going to give. And if you come and hear this presentation and they send you a key in the mail, did you ever get that? You got a key to a Ford truck in the mail. You're like, see if your key starts the truck. I hope you don't make a living doing this because this is going to be a bad day for you. All right. So, so you, you see, if this, see if this key starts the truck and you bring the key and you're like, yes, wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, I got to tell you, I know people really well who are vulnerable to these kinds of things. I'm not going to name any of them because I like eating and so forth. But, um, and so the thing comes, there's a key in the mail and then the person says, honey, let's go. Let's see if my key fits the truck. I'm like, let's not do that. But it says right here, we're guaranteed to win. Oh, were we guaranteed to win a truck? Does everybody get a truck? No, it says either win the truck or you win a valuable cash prize worth $1,000, which ends up being like a coupon book if you go to McDonald's from now for the rest of your life and you get 30 cents off the fries or something, right? And not to, not to put down McDonald's. We've got to be careful with that, you know. If McDonald's is bad. We're all dead. Am I right? Yeah. And so... And, and, and so what is that called? What's that kind of marketing called? I didn't make you look very good there, did I, Lois? I'm just kidding. Yeah. Still buddies? Yeah. Um, what's that kind of marketing called? Bait and switch. Bait and switch. It's a lie. What did somebody say a lie? It's a lie. It's a lie. It's bait and switch, right? We tell you, hey, come and get this. We get you there. It's like, you know, all of America, churches are doing bait and switch with Jesus. It's like, what's the matter? Is the product not that attractive or something? See, the problem is this. Jesus said it's going to be hard. You're going to be in a minority. You're going to accept me and I'm going to die and you're going to follow me and take up your cross and people are going to misunderstand you. They're going to say you're proud and that you're exclusive and what you believe and they're going to misunderstand you. They're going to persecute you in places in the world. There are places all over the world today where Christians are being killed for believing what you and I sang about today. But in those very same places, it's like the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in the places where those people are dying, other believers are coming up faster than the people who are dying because Jesus is God. So what's happening is Jesus never gave the bait-and-switch marketing thing, and he doesn't want us to use it either. He wants us to tell people, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, your life will be completely changed, you will give up a lot of things that you used to like. And it's going to be a part of the deal. And he's going to replace those with things that you'll grow to like even more. And it won't be easy. So we're not just to tell people, hey, come, we have something to tell you about. So your life will you'll be filled with health and, and wealth and, and happiness. Following Jesus is about earthly health, wealth, and happiness. So your best life now or something like that. We're not to tell people that. That's bait and switch marketing taken to church and that's wrong. And Jesus did not do that. He just kind of candidly said... Come, follow me, I'm going to die, and then you'll have eternal life. You follow me to death, and then we'll have eternal life. That's what Jesus said. To be saved, you have to turn from your sin, and you have to turn from your self-righteousness, and you have to turn from your religion and the things that you believed before, including self-righteous religion. J.C. Ryle, English uh, a preacher, said, It will cost you your self-righteousness. Person who believes in Christ, he will cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner, 
saved only by free grace and owing it all to the merit and the righteousness of another. You don't go before God telling Him how religious you are. You don't go before God telling Him how many church services you did, how much money you gave Him, or you got baptized until you were wrinkled like a prune. You go before God saying, I come on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Religion cannot please God. Nothing that a man or woman can do can please God. We don't have it in us to please God. That's what Romans 8 and verses 7 and 8 says, because the carnal mind is that enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The only way that we can please God is to go wrapped in the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to have eternal life, you have to give up your religion. Galatians 1, 8 and 9 says it this way, very exclusive like claims listen to this Paul's writing here and he's warning the church I've taught you the truth of the gospel like I'm talking about today and other people are going to come in and they're going to twist on that gospel and they're going to add take things away from it they're going to change it they're going to distort it here's what he says this is the message of the Bible the Apostle Paul speaking in Galatians 1 8 and 9 but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you let him be accursed As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. So get in your mind, get that fixed in your mind. You say, well, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if that makes, if that feels good to me. Well, it doesn't matter if it feels good to you. what, What matters is what Jesus said, what the Bible teaches. I, uh, this church in our town years ago that had an evangelistic a campaign to reach young people. It was called Hell Stop. Anybody ever seen one of these? Hell Stop? This is a good idea. Um, what they did, it was like a Halloween time or something, and, they, and what they did on the, on the property of their church, they set up these various little stations that they would take groups through. So the, group, the teens would show up, and they would take a group of teens through this kind of series of stations. And it, one of the places, um, there were some kids that were pretending to party and drink and carry on and so forth. And in the next station they would go to, there was an automobile accident that included those kids. Car was upside down. Beer cans were all out. And obviously there were people that had died. In the next station, the kids went to hell. So now they're just like, there's, you know, assimilating hell. They're crying out. They're screaming. They're in agony. They're, and, then, and then as you come around, they go into a tent. And at the end in the tent, there would be a guy there preaching the gospel. When he would get to the end of his message on the gospel, he would say, you have a choice to make today. And there were three doors. There was a door to the right. It went out into the darkness of the back of the property. It said, if you want to choose hell today and walk away from God, and if you want to go to hell, go through that door. Then there was another door, and that door was if you're confident today that you've received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and that you're confident that you know Him as your Savior, then you go through that door as evidence that you know that you're born again. Then there was a door in the middle that had a big question mark on it. And the door in the middle was like, if you're not sure and you want to talk to somebody, go through the door with a question mark. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's corny. So my question to you is, how did you witness last week, if you think that's corny, Right? So the church called me and they said, we're going to need people when they go through the door with a question mark. We're going to have bales of hay set up there and teens are going to be coming through that door. And we need people to talk to those kids about Jesus. Would you be willing to do that? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. So I sat there and kids came through the door after having been to hell and after hearing the gospel. They came through the question mark door. And I got to explain about Jesus, how he loves them, how he 
came to die for their sins. How he wants them to be in heaven with him for eternity. But I will tell you in the end, there aren't going to be three doors. There are just two doors, Jesus said. There's the door to death and there's the door to life. Jesus Christ alone is the door to life. All other doors, no matter what they're labeled, are doors to hell and they're doors to eternal death. That's what Jesus said. Now think about this. You, Pastor, you're saying, I kind of knew this already. How many of you knew this already? Raise your hand. You already knew it? Of course you did. Thank you for participating. You say, well, I, yeah, I came to church. You didn't tell me anything. I didn't already know. Well, stay with me here, okay? Now think of the logical. I want to keep this really simple. Right? We're simple people, aren't we? Jesus is the only way to eternal life. That's the claim of the Bible. All other ways are lead, lead to hell. Now that should, that should make us think. Knowing this should transform us. Knowing this should change us. Knowing the truth of what Jesus Christ said. And we don't know anything about Jesus unless we accept what the Bible says about Jesus. Everything else is just like people cooking up whatever they want to, kind of molding Jesus like Play-Doh into the God of their liking. And that's what people are doing all the time. Oh, I like Jesus. He's the Jesus I made up with my Play-Doh, my Play-Doh God, you know. His, Jesus is like, he's not against this or that or the other thing. Whatever sins that I can't get victory over, my little Jesus I made out of clay, you know, he's not against those sins, right? You know what I'm talking about? You talk to people, I'm not being mean, I'm just, that's the way it is, right? So people like the name Jesus, that sounds all cool. Like, Jesus, yes. Jesus of the Bible is who I'm talking about. So if somebody says, I come in the name of Jesus, he says, a lot of those people are lost. And I say, knowing this should change us. It should transform us. I think about these three things. Think about the fact that knowing Jesus absolutely transforms lives, changes lives. I, I, at 3 o'clock in the morning, woke up the other night. I don't know why, I get up. And I have a little uh, reader that I was reading some, you know, blogs. And a guy points me to the story of a fellow here. Let's see. Christopher Yan. Christopher was, uh, his parents were from China. He uh, was raised in the Chicago area. Um, he wasn't raised in the church, but his folks were very moral. His folks were very serious about his education. And he did really well. He was picked on in school a lot because he was kind of sensitive kid. He was kind of intellectual, and he wasn't athletic. People called him effeminate, and so he didn't really do well socially that way, but, but academically he was very, very bright. And so off to school he went, you know, and then when he got done with school, he went to school some more. He studied in Louisville to be a dentist. He was just a few weeks away from his graduation from dental school. But what I hadn't told you about, about uh, Christopher is that when he was a little boy, maybe nine years old, he stumbled into some very perverse pornography. And, and looking on this kind of perverse pornography confused him morally, confused him in his sexual orientation. And so he was a messed up kid. And when he went to, away from home to Louisville, he got involved in sexual promiscuity and homosexuality. One weekend he decided he was going to come home and tell his mom and dad, you need to know that I am a homosexual. It's just who I am, and you need to accept me that way. So he came home to Chicago to Westmont, and he walked into his living room, and he told his mom and dad that he was a homosexual. His mom was brokenhearted. His mom said, well, she's trying to shock him out of it. So she said, here's the way it's going to work. You can be my son, or you can be a homosexual, but you can't be my son if you're a homosexual, so you have to decide. And this very, very heartbreaking time, he said to his mom, Mom, this is just who I am, and I know I can't change so I'm going to have to say goodbye. And he got on a train, he went back to school, never thinking he would ever see his mother again because he felt like that's just who he was. 
His mom was beside herself with love for her son, desperate with love for her son, didn't know what to do. And so she went to a church. She never went to church, but she went to a church, and she talked with a pastor. The pastor gave her a little pamphlet. She decided that what she was going to do is she was going to take her life because she couldn't stand living and thinking about what had happened with her son. So she said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Louisville. I'm going to say goodbye to my son. And then after I say goodbye and tell my love, I'm going to take my life. She got on the train, and she started to go to Louisville, and she started reading this little pamphlet. And by the time she got there, she was a child of God. She had placed her faith and her trust in the Lord Jesus as her Savior. So she started witness to her son. Well, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He, her husband eventually got saved. They came, and they would visit him, and they would give him tracts, and they would give him brochures, and they would give him gospels. They would write, they would write, he would throw them away. One day, when uh, he, he t- his parents came to visit, and he got tired of them preaching at him. That's what he said to him. I want you to get out. He didn't even give him a chance to have anybody pick him up. He just said, I want you to get out. His dad walked over to him and he handed him his Bible. He said, son, when I got saved, this is my first Bible. He said, this book changed my life. I want you to take this Bible and it will change your life too. He handed his son his precious first Bible and he walked out the door. His son walked over immediately, took the Bible, and he threw it in the trash. He never saw it again. Not long after that, he moved to Atlanta. And while he was in Atlanta, he, he was not only taking drugs, he was expelled from dental school because of taking drugs, but he also realized that he could make a lot of money by selling drugs. So he was selling drugs, he was taking drugs, he was practicing sexual promiscuity. And during that time, he got a knock on the door, and he was taken by the police and thrown in prison for a number of years. While he was in prison, they came to him, and uh, the, the, the prison nurse came to him and said she had something important she needed to talk to him about, brought him into her office and said, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you're HIV positive. And so his life was falling apart. It was at that time that he turned to the Lord and came to know the Lord as his Savior and repented of his sins and turned from his sin and began to seek God, began to study the Bible, began to pray. When he, 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 um, because of good behavior and because of the change in his life, they shortened his sentence He decided that when he got out, whatever life he had left, he was going to spend that life talking to people about Jesus, how he could completely change their life. And he thought, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to need to know the Bible. I'm going to need to study the Bible. I'm going to to be uh, accurate in what I say. Since he was from the Chicago area, the only school he knew about was Moody Bible Institute. So he wrote Moody Bible Institute, and he applied to be a student at Moody Bible Institute. You understand, he's a homosexual background with AIDS, in prison. It's hard to get reference letters if that's your background, right? People at, at Moody, um, they, they said, you're going to have to give us some references. So his references were cellmates and prison chaplain and that. They accepted him at Moody. He got out. He went to Moody. He graduated from Moody. He went to grad school. He graduated from grad school. He's on the faculty of Moody Bible Institute today. And the time that he has left with his life, he and his parents go around And they talk to people about how Jesus Christ can completely change your life. Don't talk to me about your God if he can't change a homosexual. Don't talk to me about your God if he can't change a person from complete despair to having a purpose in life even while they're dying. There's only one God who can do that. His son is Jesus Christ. He died on Calvary for our sins. He changes people's lives. You know him. You know about him. Who have you told about him? You say, Pastor, I already knew this. Well, then who did you tell this week? You really believe there's a heaven? You really believe there's a hell? You really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? 
Well, then how are you letting people know about that? What difference has that made in your life? Who are you talking to about that? How can you stand not telling people about that? Change your life. Here's a guy, John, college football player, big time, really a good college football player. Played on both sides of the ball, and he was a kick returner, and he was a punter. Christian athlete. They had him speak at the Kiwanis Club. So he goes to the Kiwanis Club, and he gives his testimony, you know, an athlete testimony. He gives his testimony. This lady comes up to him, and she says, uh, I have, uh, I think it was a daughter or a niece. He wasn't sure. Story's kind of old. He says, a daughter or niece. This, this girl was uh, out back with her boyfriend, and they were horsing around with a gun. The gun was discharged. She was shot through the spine. She's a quadriplegic. Would you please go and visit her in the hospital? So John goes to the hospital to visit her. He doesn't know what he's going to say. He's just an athlete. He's not like, he doesn't have any theological training. He's not got a lot of experience. He just goes, he figures, I just, I'm going to tell her about the Lord. When he gets to the hospital, she's like lying there on a sheepskin. She can't move. And she says to him, if I could move, the very first thing that I would do is I would kill myself. I have no hope and I have no reason to live. And so he gave her the gospel. He told her about Jesus. He said, this isn't all there is to it. There's another life after this. That life is eternal. You can have a purpose for living. She received Christ. She said to him, can you come back and visit me tomorrow? He came back the next day. Here's what he said. When he got there, the first thing that she said, you understand, the first thing she said before was, if I could move, I would take my life. The next day, after Jesus came into her life, she says, I'm so glad this happened to me. Because if this hadn't happened to me, I would never have known Jesus Christ. John steps back and he says to himself as he walks out of the hospital, I think he had a whole bunch of offers to play professional football. He had the, back then there were like three major football leagues, AFL, NFL, something like that. And he had offers from each one. But because of the experience of talking to the girl in the hospital and seeing the gospel change her life, he went to his coach and he said, tell, tell them all that I'm going to go to seminary. You, you probably know I'm talking about John MacArthur who's been greatly used of the Lord in ministry. His first year in seminary, he got a call from uh, Paul Warfield, who was with the Cleveland Browns. And the Cleveland Browns said, you know, are you tired of seminary yet? And he was. <laughs> the Greek and the Hebrew and the study, he was tired of it. He said it would be so much easier to go play football. But he remembered the girl, how the gospel completely changed a girl overnight. Now, folks, you and I have the same gospel John MacArthur has. You and I have the very same Gospel that Christopher Yon has. The very same life-transforming gospel. In our church, lately, there's been a lot of heartache. In our church, there's been um, uh, adult children recently die or despair of life. Just sad things. It's got me to thinking, before we go home today, I'm going to read you something that I wrote. And it's primarily written to encourage people who think how short and how troubled and how sad life can be. How, I'll just, I'll just read it to you instead of telling you. There was a boy who always, was always deathly ill with car sickness. It happened to him, especially on his way to his grandparents' home when the hills began to roll. He had such pain that he would complain to his father, Dad, you've got to do something. I think I'm going to die. I can't take it anymore. My stomach hurts so bad car sickness. His dad would never say much to him. He would just keep driving toward the farm. And he would say things like, well, if you're going to get sick, son, don't make a mess on the floor. Tell me if, you, if I need to pull over and I'll pull over. 
Try to look outside the car. Maybe it'll make you feel better. Would you like something to drink? Hey, son, you'll feel better when we get there. Finally, mercifully, he would arrive at his grandparents' farm and his suffering would finally ebb away. When he got to the farm, he would take off his shoes and he would roll up his jeans and he would wade in the stream in the cold water, washing over his feet smooth rocks beneath. And he would run in the grass and he would pick flowers for his mother and he would chase butterflies and he would fish and he would swim and he would climb trees and he would swing in the barn and he would jump in the hay and he would chase the dogs and he would lie on his belly in the field and he would eat wild strawberries and then they would call him in for dinner. He wasn't hungry, but he wanted to be around his people, so he would go in to eat, but he wouldn't really ever eat very much because of the car sickness. And then after dinner, his grandmother would slide a warm piece of pie in front of him with a big glob of melting homemade ice cream. And then it was evening, and he would chase fireflies, and he would lie on the porch, and he would look up into the night sky at the bright stars, He would climb the wooden stairs to bed at night and he would crawl into the big poster bed. He would be lost in the soft covers that his grandmother put there for him. And with hay-scented air billowing the white curtains, he would listen to the murmuring and the soft laughter of adult voices from down below and the sounds of frogs and crickets on the night air. And lying there with the weight of his grandmother's quilt on him, he couldn't even remember what it felt like to be sick anymore because he was so happy and he was in such a wonderful place with people he loved, and people who loved him. Now, friends, we may be car sick on the way to that place where there will be no night, and there will be no death, and there will be no sickness, and there will be no sadness, and there will be no sorrow, and there will be no sin. But it will be such a beautiful place that we will forget how sick and how hard it was. That's what the Bible says. Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this present time. I'm not worthy to be compared to the glory which will be revealed. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as your Savior? Wouldn't today be a good day if you haven't done that? And if you have, what excuse do you have? You have to not just tell everybody you know. This, the wonderful comfort that you can give to people when you know Christ as your Savior. The great confidence and assurance that you can give to people that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He said, I'm the door. You know it. You tell them. They need to know. Would you stand with me? I want you to sing a little song. There's coming a day when whole heartaches will come. Please sing it with me before we go home today. <laughs>